Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this time. We say that every week, but we do count on the privilege to be able to get together and to study your word together. Thank you for the sermon we just heard from Pastor Brett and the challenge and the conviction that it brings. Just ask that you would help us all each to be humbled before you and, and just seeking to honor you in everything we do and recognizing the truly what it is to fear you and also recognizing the splendor of your glory. Lord, as we spend time this morning looking at your word, together and seeking to better understand what you've communicated about who you are, specifically in understanding the person and work of the Holy Spirit. We just ask that you would be with our discussion, be with me as I seek to communicate clearly and directly from your text, but be with everyone here as they are discerning and considering what's discussed. And just ask that as a result of our time together, we would all be more and more equipped and more and more confident in what your, your word says as we seek to understand all that, all that changes in our lives when we understand that you've sent your Holy Spirit for us. We love you, Lord. We lift this time up to you. It is in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Have you ever heard conflicting teaching about the Holy Spirit? This is a, this is a yes or no. Have you ever heard conflicting teaching about the Holy Spirit? Yes, I see a couple of some people know maybe, okay. Have you ever noticed that some people talk about the Holy Spirit more like a force than a person? Have you ever heard the claim or accusation that we should focus less on the Bible and more on being quote unquote led by the Spirit? Has anyone heard that that claim? Am I totally the only one that's heard that? Or have you heard, let's, let's focus on scripture, let's focus on doctrine, and, and we need to focus more on just being led by the Holy Spirit. The, the quote, doctrine divides, but the Spirit unites. Maybe it's be something you've heard. I think maybe you will resonate with this statement, but in reflecting on the beliefs of many in our day and age, it seems many people have incorporated new age and mystical beliefs into their view of the Spirit, such that in their minds, the Holy Spirit is actually more like the force from Star Wars than he is the person that God revealed in his word. And I think as we reflect personally, there may be elements in which we have adopted a similar mindset. My prayer and my hope over this week and the coming weeks as we do a mini-series on the Holy Spirit will be that we'd come away from this time with a better understanding of what Scripture has to say about who the Holy Spirit is and what he does in our lives. I do have a handout for this morning. If I could get a couple people to help me pass it out, that'd be helpful. There should be copious amounts. There you go. If there's any blanks that you missed throughout the morning, let me know, and we can fill in those blanks afterwards. Actually, I'm going to... Might be short some, so here you go, Luke. So over the next five weeks, today we're going to be talking about the promise of the Spirit, looking at what Jesus said in John 16. Next week, Lord willing, as with all the others, we'll be talking about the coming of the Spirit in Acts 2, the Spirit-filled life, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and then we'll also look at select passages in Acts for that, and then we'll talk about understanding spiritual gifts. And I just want to comment a little bit about the style that I hope we have for this time together. 
I hope this will be a context in which as we go, you can raise your hand with questions and we can discuss those things as they come up. really want it to be um, feedback as we go, not just a, a monologue, because these are matters that produce a lot of questions, and these are things that we should be comfortable to say, hey, what, what do we mean by this? What, is, what does that mean? What does that entail? Raise your hand, ask, and hopefully, so that this series will be of maximum benefit for all of us, it'll be a time that we can ask those questions, slow down, and answer them. So, for this morning, we will look at just a, a basic understanding of the Holy Spirit. We'll, we'll just read what Calvary's beliefs are as far as what we believe at Calvary about the Holy Spirit. Then we'll jump into looking at the upper room discourse, the context of the passage that we're looking at. And then from John 16, we're going to see four limitations to the earthly ministry of Jesus, which might sound like, wait a second, limitations to the earthly ministry of Jesus. And then we're going to look at the two great ministries of the Holy Spirit that Jesus talks about in this passage. Capiche? Everyone's tracking? Everyone has a handout? All right, we're going to read this longer quote from what Calvary believes, our statement of faith, covering multiple different things we believe, but this summarizes a few passages that would be great to look up if you have more questions. We won't go through all these passages over the series, but quote, we believe that the Holy Spirit is a person, not an impersonal force. He is God, equal in nature with God, the Father and God, the Son. He was active in creation. He restrains sin and Satan in the world. He convicts unsaved men of sin, of the righteousness of Christ, and of the future judgment of sin as the gospel is proclaimed. And he makes all who trust in Jesus to become new creations and baptizes them into the body of Christ. Furthermore, the Holy Spirit indwells, seals, guides, teaches, assures, intercedes for, and helps the believer. The Holy Spirit's ministry in this age is to glorify Christ in and through the believer by reproducing the character of Jesus Christ in the believer's life. So that's a short summary. For most of us, none of those things will be probably major aha moments. I never thought of that. These are much what we go over this morning. will probably be review. But I just want to put that before, before us before we jumped into looking at some of the specifics and then kind of the nitty-gritty from individual texts of what the Spirit does. So we're going to be in John 16. Please turn with me there. We'll be there pretty much this whole morning. So if we turn to other passages, keep your finger in that passage because we'll be flipping back to it. John 16, verses 4 through 15. It's really important to understand this section of the Gospel of John and realize that it's what's called the upper room discourse. So it's, it's the conversation that's happening between Jesus and the 11 disciples in the upper room right before Jesus is going to be betrayed, handed over, given a mock trial, and then crucified. It's the final, final major segment of Jesus' teaching to the disciples before his teaching, or before his crucifixion. In John 14 through 17 is this, this section. It's a very intimate glimpse at the way that, that Jesus communicates to his disciples and communicated to the soon-to-be apostles, his messengers to the world. And also, while well, finger is still in John 16, take a look at 1330. John 1330. This is in reference to after Jesus has just said, one will betray me, that one is Judas. And then in verse 30, so after receiving the morsel of bread, that is Judas, he immediately went out and it was night. And now that's where this, this upper room discourse picks up from there. So it's, to use a current illustration, it's a bit like you've had a group chat 
and you just saw the bloop, so-and-so just left the chat. You're like, well, okay, he's gone. But now what remains are those that are truly disciples, truly followers of Christ. No longer is Judas present, which is going to be important because the sorts of things Jesus is going to promise would not be pertinent to Judas. So as we look at chapter 16, bear that in mind also as we see how Jesus describes the Holy Spirit's ministry. So starting in verse 4, kind of halfway through verse 4 in chapter 16. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me and none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. The first section we'll look at is verses 4 through 7. And we'll see four limitations to the earthly ministry of Jesus. The first is limited revelation initially. Limited revelation initially. That's a blank on your paper for those of you that want to follow along. Limited revelation initially. Verse 5. I'm going to him who sent me. None of you asked me, where are you going? I guess, sorry, so I shouldn't say um, verse 5, verse 4. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. This comment highlights the reality of what we call progressive revelation. The fact that God reveals himself in a, in a progressive matter. It's not just like, boom, instantly. The moment the disciples started following Jesus, all of a sudden they instantly understood everything there was to understand about the Christian life. This highlights that Jesus initially communicated things to them, and there's aspects of what he's getting ready to communicate to them that he did not initially communicate them. So there's progressive revelation even within Jesus' ministry. God communicates in, in stages and waves. He does this even throughout Jesus' ministry we see this. But we also see this on a, on a grand scale when we think about the way that he revealed himself to Adam and Eve and then to Moses and before that to, to Abram and then the prophets and then in the New Testament. So another thing we believe at Calvary, there's a, a big word for it that is long since fallen out of use, but it's still the word that we commonly use. It's called dispensationalism. And that means, quote, we believe that God progressively reveals truth about himself and his purposes to mankind in stages throughout distinct periods of history. These periods are called dispensations. Merriam-Webster defines a dispensation as a general state or order of things. So things were this way, and then they progressed to being this way. So we, we do experience this in our own lives. We don't necessarily think of them as dispensations just personally, but like 
Childhood is different than the teen years, which is different than adulthood, which is different than also marriage, which is different than parenthood, etc. There's, there's different seasons, you could say, or stages. Well, in a similar but different way, that's happening on a grand scale in the way that God's communicating to his creation. So when we highlight, the reason I highlight this and the reason Jesus says, yes, I didn't say this at the beginning, but I'm saying this now, is because what's approaching is a major you could say, shift in dispensations. It's a, it's a new stage that's about to start. Jesus is about to go with, to be with the Father after his crucifixion, and what's going to come after that is the apostles are going to be the means by which God's revelation is declared to the world. The gospel is going to go forth from these 11 men in a room that are young guys. So there's a major shift that's getting ready to happen, and Jesus is preparing, preparing them for that shift and understanding that is going to be critical when we look at how the, the New Testament portrays the work of the Holy Spirit, particularly in the early phases of the early church, in the apostolic age. So that's the first thing we see. The second limitation, you could say, to Jesus' earthly ministry was the limited time with the disciples. It was, it was a temporary amount of time where he was physically going to be on earth. Verse 5, but now I'm going to him who sent me. And none of you asks me, where are you going? He is not going to be with them soon. This is going to be hard for them to grasp, of course, because being with Jesus is all they have known for the last three years. But Jesus is returning to the one who sent him, the Father. In this next stage or season or dispensation, Jesus will not be physically present with his disciples. This will be a very significant change, and the Holy Spirit will play a critical role during this shift. Jesus' first coming was not meant to be indefinite. After atoning for our sin, raising from the dead, and commissioning the disciples for the spread of the gospel and establishing the church, he then ascended into heaven until he returns to begin the next stage of his unfolding history. So he had a limited time with his disciples. This was a limited season. Another thing was the limited perspective response of the disciples, the limited perspective response, the response that comes from having a very limited perspective. And their response is sorrow, appropriately so. From their perspective, this would produce sorrow because all their perspective has known is that Jesus, God in flesh, God the Son, is with them. That's all they've known. So their perspective is sorrow, verse 6. But because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Just think about this from the disciples' point of view. Try to put yourselves in their shoes and imagine what that night would have been like. Judas just went out with the prophecy being that he would betray, and that is actively what he's doing right now. While they're hearing this message, Judas is rounding up a group that will soon betray the Messiah. So put yourselves in their shoes, and of course this would produce sorrow. Realize the magnitude of the task that's before them. There are 11 young men in a room preparing to watch the Messiah die. They are thinking a lot of sorrowful things. But then Jesus says something that may be surprising to us and certainly would have been surprising to them in verse 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For I for if I do not go away, the helper, and that's a capital H helper, recognizing that's in reference to God, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Jesus tells them that it is better 
that he leaves. This is the limited benefit to Jesus' presence, the limited benefit to Jesus' presence. Jesus then tells them that it is better that he leaves because of what this next stage or season or dispensation will entail. When he goes into heaven, he will send the Holy Spirit. Currently, he is with them. Soon he will be in them. His Spirit will be in them. John 14, 16 through 17. You can look over at that, a couple pages over maybe. John 14, 16 through 17. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. He dwells with you and will be in you. So Jesus is saying, right now, this Spirit dwells with you because Jesus is full of the Spirit, but soon he will dwell in you. This highlights the importance of just the, the little distinction of one word, in, with. Those, those mean have entirely different ramifications for what the believers will experience. So that's the limited benefit to Jesus' presence. I guess furthermore on this. This is the person who we will be talking about for the next few weeks. We're going to be looking at who is the Holy Spirit and what does the Holy Spirit do? How does his activity particularly characterize the church age, the age in which we are right now? And how ought we understand his ministry to believers today? But before we do that, we're looking at this passage, which, which zooms us back and, and kind of we have this desire to just say, like, what's he do for me right now? I want to hear about what the Holy Spirit does for me right now. And that's normally what the conversation is about, about you as an individual and what the Holy Spirit does for you. But we have to zoom out and realize that his ministry is more broad than simply for us. So we're going to turn now to a couple of reflection questions at tables, um, probably maybe five minutes on this or so, and then we'll discuss a little bit together. The reflection questions are, how do the limitations related to Jesus' earthly ministry highlight the value of the Holy Spirit for the church age? So how, do, how does the limitations of the Holy Spirit's ministry in the time when Jesus is walking the earth highlight his value to us in the church age? And what can we learn from Jesus, from Jesus saying that it was better for the disciples and apostles that he go away? So please discuss those at tables for a few minutes and then we'll try to, try to be prepared to summarize some of the things you talked about and we'll go over those together. So go for it. All right. I know for some of you it may feel like the conversation is just getting started, but for others it feels like it's dragging on. So let's um, just come together and talk a little bit about what we're learning. So what, what, uh, what are some answers you guys had to those questions and any questions that came up in answering those questions? I want to hear what you guys are talking about at tables. Not all at once, though. We've got to go one at a time, otherwise we're not going to hear each other. Yeah, so yeah, I will never leave you or forsake you, right? Jesus sending his spirit and being the means of fulfilling that. Never, yeah. What else? Jesus can be everywhere at once in the earthly body, but kind of the same way the Holy Spirit can 
not bound by time or borders or whatever. Hmm. And that you are bound by it, this earthly body. Yeah. That definitely benefits us because you know, we don't have to go to Jerusalem to see the physical body of Jesus to get our revelation or teaching. We can just be able to do it. Yeah, I think it's, it's important, maybe even asking this question, some of you are like uncomfortable with like limitations in Jesus' ministry. Wait a second. We're talking about God. Are we really going to talk about limitations? Well, what invites us to ask that question is the fact that it is God incarnate. He took on flesh, which is, by definition, taking on limitations, which should be a mind-boggling reality of God's grace. So, yes, um, great point on the all-present ability of the Holy Spirit and not limited to a three-mile-per-hour walking pace from one city to the next. So, yeah. Any other comments or, or other discussion points that came up at the table that may be fruitful for everyone? Um, there's also an element of um, limitation of the fame and the worship aspects of ministry um, healing and such. Um, that that was um, there wasn't um, too good. A lot of people end up um, kind of bogging their mind down. connection. All right, we'll roll on to the second section. The Holy Spirit's ministry. I'm going to look at two great ministries of the Holy Spirit. First, if you look at verses 8 through 11, will be the Holy Spirit's ministry of guaranteeing a response to the gospel. Guaranteeing a response to the gospel through conviction. <clears throat> the Holy Spirit's ministry of guaranteeing a response to the gospel through conviction. For those of you that struggle with spelling guaranteeing, like me, that's G-U-A-R-A-N-T-E-E-I-N-G. <laughs> so this first ministry of the Holy Spirit is toward the world. This is the first thing that Jesus mentions here, is his ministry to the world. Again, as we mentioned earlier, when we think about the Holy Spirit, we might default to asking the question, what about me? What about me? What does the Holy Spirit do when he indwells me? This passage teaches us to first consider what he does for the world, and then to consider what he did for the apostles, and then we will continue to flesh out what he does for us today. But this first ministry towards the world of guaranteeing a response through conviction. So first, the conviction concerning sin. Conviction concerning sin. The world does not naturally believe in Jesus as the Savior. This rejection of Jesus as the Savior is sin. And it is the most fundamental and damning sin for to believe in Jesus Christ is to trust the only means by which all other sins are forgiven. So fundamentally, the world's problem, our problem as sinners before Christ saved us, 
is that fundamental disbelief in Jesus as our Savior. But the conviction of this sin, the conviction that I am a sinner who's rejected my only hope of salvation, is a conviction that is produced by the Holy Spirit. When we pair this teaching when in, with other teachings that we talked about previously, specifically the doctrine of sin and understanding what exactly sin is and thinking about passages like Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, where we learn we're dead in our trespasses and sins, it's not natural for dead bodies to feel anything. So our spiritual deadness, even that, needs to feel conviction. But that conviction, conviction of sin, comes from the Holy Spirit. So when we talk about the Holy Spirit's ministry to the world, the first is conviction concerning sin. Sin because they do not believe in me. Jesus highlights what sin we're talking about, the sin of disbelief. The second conviction is conviction concerning righteousness, concerning righteousness. Jesus is not present on the earth. Verse 10, concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. When Jesus was walking on the earth, people hated him for his righteousness. They tried to do, well, eventually they, they crucified him for his righteousness. But he will be soon, from this, the perspective of this passage, soon with the Father. But even though he's not present on earth in this next season, nevertheless, his righteousness will be recognized because of the Holy Spirit's conviction ministry in the world. The Spirit will convict people of their need for a righteous Savior. This goes hand in hand with conviction concerning sin and conviction concerning the need for a Savior. A major ministry of the Holy Spirit is his bearing witness about Jesus. John 15, 26. John 15, 26. It's like right before this passage. When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. He will bear witness about me. So this is tremendously comforting again for these 11 guys in this room that are getting ready to be commissioned to share the truth with the world, to face all sorts of hardships in the process, to hear that as you are articulating the truths of the gospel, there's going to be an internal heart work that's being done on the hearers, a heart work that you cannot do, that none of us can do, of producing conviction over sin, of producing conviction concerning righteousness, and lastly, concerning Judgment. Conviction concerning judgment, verse 11. Concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged already. The Spirit convicts people that the prince of the power of the air is judged, and furthermore, that to continue in his rebellion, to continue along the same lines of Satan, is to continue in his rebellion and to surely experience the same condemnation and judgment awaiting him. So this conviction that comes that this, the, the, the evil ruler of this present age is already condemned, that conviction is something that the Holy Spirit produces in the world. And the production of all these convictions forces a decision. Forces a decision for every hearer at every time the gospel is proclaimed. There will either be a hardening or there will be a softening, but the word of the Lord never returns void. There's never a time in which someone hears God's word. There's never a time in which you go to church and hear the word preached, in which your heart is not in some way changed. Because that ministry of conviction, especially for non-believers, particularly though it's being articulated here with the world, it guarantees a response, a response of either repentance and faith or a response of rejection. But that internal work is something the Holy Spirit will do. So some application reflections on this. How is the world convicting ministry of the Holy Spirit important as we think about the non-believers in our own lives? As we think about those that we've sought to share our faith with, 
How is the fact that Jesus promises the conviction of the Holy Spirit, conviction of the Holy Spirit producing these things, how is that a, a comfort and a help to us? Because of the Holy Spirit's ministry of conviction, we realize there is never a neutral response to the message. Either there will be rejection or repentance, but there will never be neutral or no response. A quote from one commentator, James Hamilton, says, The world has hated Jesus because he has convicted them of their sin. That's something that Jesus did regularly in his preaching was convict people, cause conviction. And then Hamilton goes on to say, And the world will hate his disciples because through the Spirit they will convict the world of their sin. So the same, again, sometimes it produces a very negative response. And that's what the disciples received as most of them, all but one really, died mostly horrible deaths for their faith. Because the Holy Spirit was doing that convicting work. They were not dismissing the apostles as, oh, they're just doing their own thing, that's fine. No, the words that they were saying were producing conviction because the Holy Spirit was doing that work. So the Holy Spirit's ministry of conviction is a powerful comfort to us today as we seek to share the gospel. Here is a promise from Jesus Christ that the Spirit will produce conviction in hearts. It does not ultimately rest on our shoulders to make someone believe they're a sinner, to make someone believe that Jesus is righteous, and to make someone believe that judgment is coming and is final. These supernatural internal heart works are works produced by the Holy Spirit. If you are a believer also, this should cause us to rejoice and take great comfort that the Holy Spirit did that work in us because apart from him, we would not. So that's the first aspect of the Holy Spirit's ministry in this passage, his ministry to the world, guaranteeing a response. The second is of guiding the disciples into truth. Guiding the disciples into truth. In verse 12, we see that there's more communication. Jesus has more to say. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. There's more communication. The promise of more communication from God. The disciples were, quote unquote, at capacity. Have you ever experienced this? Have you ever, maybe even just getting done with a lecture, hopefully not when you get done with one of me teaching, but you're just kind of like frazzled. I'm not, I'm at capacity. I can't take anything else. I'm I'm fried is basically the sense here. I have more to share with you, but you can't bear it right now. You're, you're, you're at capacity. You're, you can't load the battery more than 100%. But yet there's more truth to communicate. So how's this going to work for the apostles? John 14, 26. Critical text. Underline it, circle it, bold it, connect it to this passage, however you want to connect it to this passage. John 14, I'll start in 25, but verse 26 is the main one. These things I've spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. He will bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. These are the men that will be entrusted with the writing of Scripture, that will be entrusted with writing our New Testament. This is... This text that we're reading right now from John was written by the disciple John who was sitting there hearing these words. And imagine the relief from hearing Jesus say, my spirit who's been with you will be in you such that you will remember everything I've communicated and you will be able to perfectly recall it and perfectly communicate it to others. 
Imagine if this promise wasn't there. Imagine the worry of like, are we going to remember this? Are we going to get this message right? Are we going to communicate this accurately? But Jesus promises that his spirit will guide them. They're at capacity. There's more to come, but the Holy Spirit will both recall to their minds and solidify them in the communication of what that truth is. So not only is there more communication, there's true communication that's going to be coming. This is the spirit of truth. The Holy Spirit is characterized by truth. He'll guide them into truth. Verse 13, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you not only into truth, but into all truth, into the completion of truth, and I believe into the finalization of the canon of Scripture entailed in that all truth. For he will not speak of his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. All truth is a good description of the New Testament. All truth, quote-unquote, is a good description of the New Testament, the product of the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. The disciples will not be dependent on their fallible memories to reproduce all that Jesus said. The helper will come. Thirdly, there's future communication entailed. Future communication is entailed. At the end of 13b, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you things that are to come. Also, I want to highlight the fact that this is John writing this gospel. What other significant book in the New Testament did John write? What? Revelation. Revelation. What is Revelation about? A lot of it. Things to come, right? So this promise from Jesus that the Holy Spirit will be the means by which things to come are revealed is, I am sure, an especially great comfort to John as he realizes that he will not be just speaking of his own authority as he's writing about things to come, but the Holy Spirit will be revealing those things to him. So, future communication, future truth, what we call eschatology. Though We heard that this, this morning in the sermon, the eschatological encouragement from Isaiah 2-4. An aspect of what the Holy Spirit would declare to the disciples is the things to come. Future realities would be a key theme of what the apostles would write about in the New Testament. It's not just Revelation. It's also throughout many of the New Testament letters are aspects about things to come, things that only the Holy Spirit could reveal to the apostles that are receiving this promise, this comforting promise, and one that causes us to take great hope. Fourthly is authoritative communication. Authoritative communication. The Spirit's communication will have the same authority as Jesus' communication. There is no matter of this whole, Jesus said this, but then, well, this, this was said by the Holy Spirit. And I understand the value of having a Bible that that puts your, the words of Jesus in red. I understand how that can be valuable. But also realize that that can be dangerous if you misunderstand, like, oh, well, the words of Jesus are in red, but the rest are just black ink. And it's like, eh, that's like, that's just the apostles writing that. No, no, no. <laughs> Recognize that all Scripture is God-breathed, not just the parts in red. And part of what comforts us is, is this text in recognizing that what the Holy Spirit revealed as they wrote the New Testament is equally as authoritative as what Jesus communicated when he was having a conversation with two guys on the road to Emmaus or whatever else was entailed in that conversation. The point is, there's not any sort of dichotomy between the authority of what the Holy Spirit communicates through when 
with Jesus or in Jesus and versus in the disciples. So those are mutually authoritative. There's no, there's no dichotomy. And the reason for that is because the Spirit will perfectly relay what is from the Father. Read in verse 13, when the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority. But whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. It will be the message that the Holy Spirit would give to the apostles was not a new message or something distinct from what Jesus had revealed. It was going to be perfectly in line with communication they'd already received because it was coming from the same source. The Holy Spirit is, is one with the Father, one with the Son. We're not going to fully unpack the doctrine of the Trinity today, but we firmly believe that. Jesus makes clear that the authority behind the truth that he's communicated comes from the Father, and he confirms that the authority by which the Holy Spirit will communicate to the apostles is with the same level of authority. This should cause us to have great confidence in God's word. Jesus affirms that there will be a complete continuity of authority between him and the Holy Spirit. The apostles will not be receiving a different message. It won't be a, a, a different, like something strange. Wow, Jesus didn't say that. I didn't see that one coming. Wow, something, something new and different that we're receiving after Jesus went to heaven. No, it will be perfectly in line. And I want to highlight how Peter shows the supremacy of written scripture, spirit-inspired revelation. Turn with me. Keep your finger in, in John 16, but turn with me to 2 Peter 1. 2 Peter 1, 16 this is one of the later letters written in the New Testament. It's important to realize that this is being written by someone who was in this room, the Apostle Peter. Not only was he in this room, he was on the Mount of Transfiguration where he saw Jesus' glory literally. He saw Jesus. He walked with Jesus. He had this conversation with him. But notice what he says is of greater value for us. 2 Peter 1, 16-21. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. We were there. We saw it. We were eyewitnesses. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I'm well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Check this out. Verse 19, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture, writing, graphe, writing, no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. Where does it come from? It's not someone's own interpretation. Verse 21, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Peter is saying the authoritative revelation of God's written word as inspired by the Holy Spirit is of more weight, of more gravity than as if I had, yeah, I was there standing on the mountain. I saw Jesus glorified. What I'm saying is you have something that is better. You have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. Critical to connect that understanding that's coming from someone who was there in this room realizing there's going to be a perfect continuity and authority. And not only that, the, the, the Spirit is going to inspire them as they write Scripture such that they don't have to rely on, well, I, I was there, I saw it, I know I experienced it, but I'm not sure. Right here we have the highlight that what Scripture says is of much greater 
weight than even I was standing on that mountain and I saw Jesus. No, we have it more fully confirmed. We have it written in Scripture. Fifthly, it will be Christ-glorifying communication that the Holy Spirit will give. Christ-glorifying communication. The Spirit's communication will honor Jesus. Verse 15, the Holy Spirit's role is that of active glorification of Jesus Christ. The way that Jesus would be glorified by the Spirit is by the Holy Spirit being a perfect, you could say four-bar signal that relayed God's message to the disciples. There would be no interruption in communication between God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. There would be no, well, Jesus wanted us to hear this, but then the apostles decided, I want to put a little spin on it. I'm going to do this instead. Or not even the apostles said, the Spirit somehow went rogue and said, actually, I want him to do this and glorify me instead, or whatever it might be. That's totally off the table, and Jesus is dispelling that concern. He's going to be glorifying and honoring the Son by perfectly communicating all that the Son has for the apostles and for us today, those that can read what they wrote for us. So the application in this section, the ministry of the Holy Spirit to the apostles throughout the establishment of the church should be especially encouraging to us as believers today. It should produce increased confidence in God's word. These promises assure us that Jesus' New Testament messengers were not taking and twisting what Jesus delivered. As we jump into a multi-week series on the Holy Spirit, it's my prayer that we would be clearly guided by his word and recognize that there is never a dichotomy between the Holy Spirit and God's word. There's a quote from Calvin that I I love it. He says, but they, that is insulting to the subject, but they say that it is insulting to the subject of the Spirit, to whom all things are to be subject, to the Scripture. So he's saying there's, there's people that are saying, it's just, it's just bad that you would subject the Holy Spirit to Scripture and judge the Spirit by Scripture. They say it's insulting to subject the Spirit, to whom all things are subject, to the Scripture. As if it were disgraceful to the Holy Spirit to maintain a perfect resemblance throughout and be in all respects without variation consistent within himself. So what he's saying is, there's people that are saying, it's, why are you subjecting the Holy Spirit to Scripture? But the, the, the irony of that is, first off, the Spirit, everything's in subjection to the Spirit, and we can't accuse the Spirit of somehow being inconsistent. He's revealed Scripture. So of course we understand what the Holy Spirit, who the Holy Spirit is and what the Holy Spirit does through Scripture. So I just thought that was, that has to be our guiding point as we go into this series and, and look at what, what the Holy Spirit does and, and who he is. We have to be governed by Scripture. Otherwise, we will be who knows where, but we won't be anywhere related to what the Holy Spirit has revealed himself to be. So he is the Spirit of truth and the promises we've studied this morning are immensely encouraging as we consider how he inspired the New Testament authors such that their words would be the very authoritative words of God himself. And I realize, again, we mentioned it, but our tendency is to want to jump right in and say, what does the Holy Spirit do for me? Let's talk about the gifts of the Spirit. Let's talk about the fruit of the Spirit. Let's talk about me, indwelling Spirit. That sounds cool. That sounds powerful. I think we want to start here and recognize what the Holy Spirit does for the world and what the Holy Spirit did for the apostles because that's the means by which we're going to know what the Holy Spirit does for us. So with that, there's a few more discussion questions. You can take those at tables, take 10 minutes or so. And then at the end of your time at tables, um, you can close in prayer. If there's any pressing prayer requests, please share those with each other. I will close our time right now in prayer, and then you can jump into discussing those questions together. Yeah. yeah um, quick question. Yeah. Um, so in our society right now, in our culture, 
currently right now is you know subject to activity. I feel this way, and so this is how I would like to do this, especially in regards to identity politics. So in your mind, why is it preferable that God uses the scripture as opposed to revealing himself individually to people using the spirit? Good question. Um, I, I, I have to even answer the quote with, well, in my mind, dot, 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 because that is doing the same sort of thing, subjectivity. So I think the, the first Peter or second Peter passage is a, is a good highlight for that, that it's, it's not reliant on the subjective impressions of one individual, but the, the written writing, the, the prophecy more fully um, confirmed. So from that, we, we learned that obviously that is a priority of the Lord. But I mean, obviously, just in a practical sense, we can think of, and we've seen the confusion that's produced when well, I thought the Holy Spirit told me this, and well, I thought the Holy Spirit told me this, and there's no consistency between those impressions, and yeah, <laughs> gets into relationships, and like, well, I just, I know God told me that I'm going to marry this person. I'm like, well, she doesn't think that, so obviously there's, God's, God's miscommunicating if someone says God told me this, someone said that God told me this, so um, that's one element just practically where it unfolds, but does that remotely answer your question? I think just the, the, the conflict of what God says to someone else and what causes to someone else is a thing that we would obviously want to defend against because God's not a God of confusion. He's not going to be saying one thing to one person and then saying something contradictory to someone else. So the fact that we have the, the written word of God closed, sealed, finalized. I mean, we can look at the, the last chapter, the last book, Revelation 22. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. If anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. So grave penalties for adding to, subtracting from God's word. Yeah, and I think it's just, it is really important to highlight that this morning we're primarily talking about what's called the doctrine of inspiration, like the fact that God inspired Scripture. We do firmly believe in the doctrine of illumination, which is a critical aspect when we start to look at what the Holy Spirit does for us. We'll look at that in future weeks. But it's really important to realize that we need that, even as believers, we need that guard to go down and to truly trust what God says, that, that illumination that we, we see what God is communicating in scripture because our sinfulness isn't blocking it and we can truly see what God communicated to us. So there's, there's a subjective element in the reception, I guess you could say, but there is absolute objectivity in the communication, if that makes sense. So, any other questions? Good question. All right, I'm gonna close this in prayer and then you can discuss those questions at tables. Heavenly Father, we love you and we are dependent on you. We thank you that there's complete continuity and authority between your will, and what you revealed in Scripture through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. I thank you just personally for the work of conviction you did in my own heart in helping me to recognize my own sinfulness, recognize my lack of righteousness, and recognize the judgment that was awaiting me accordingly. Lord, I ask that for anyone in this room that is not yet trusted in you, that you would as you produce a response, cause it to be a response of repentance. And for those of us that do know you, I just ask that you would help us to take great comfort in the fact that we can know you exactly as you revealed yourself to, to be known through your word and that we don't have to worry about confusion or, or misinterpretation or mistranslation from the apostles 
and that all that they wrote is breathed out by you and useful for us. I ask that you be with the discussions right now at tables, allow them to be fruitful discussions and encouraging and challenging and sharpening as we seek to know more of your word and, and better understand all that you've revealed yourself to be. We love you, Lord, it's in Christ, and we pray. Amen.